You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 56 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. We broadcast on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as on the Star Wars Report website. That's www.starwarsreport.com. Our episodes are also available on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I am one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Hurleman. And with me like a death mark, you just can't escape the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, I'm going to get you, sucker. Wasn't that the old movie's name? <laughs> sucker. Sucker going to get it. Man, speaking of suckers, you know, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like lately I've been being suckered by uh, some of the marketing campaigns. I don't know. We'll get more into that later. But right now, we're going to get into the main meat. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we discuss the Oceans 11, 12, and 13 of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, Timothy Zahn's recent addition to the history of that same Expanded Universe, Scoundrels. Now consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, and fans of all ages, because here we go. And let's take that spoiler warning pretty seriously here. Don't want to have a repeat of Facebook the other day or Twitter the other day. Um, but no, this one, in in order to have a discussion that, that fully hits this book, there is one major spoiler that is something that's not revealed to literally the last page, page and a half of the book that we're going to wind up needing to discuss to put things into perspective. So the spoiler warning this time, uh, take that to heart if you're planning on reading Scoundrels. We're not going to do every twist and turn, but... You know, it's it'd probably a little bit more spoilerific this time than most times. Yeah, and then we'll definitely try to push that towards the back of everything. Now, the first thing I'm going to say, I admit, I thought I'd love this book, and never have I been more wrong. Um, and we'll get more into that as we go, but I just want to throw that out there now. If you've been following on Facebook and Twitter, you've probably seen my struggles with this book. I've It, it just drug for me. Uh, but the first thing I want to talk about, though, is the cover. Um, I have a really pet peeve here with the cover yeah i i'm a big fan of kel tainer and so when i saw kel was in this book i was like oh sweet and then i found out he's a kid i'm like oh this is cool but then i'm looking at the bookmarks and the cover and all the stuff that came out at celebration six and stuff and kel is this old looking dude that looks like biff tanner on the cover i'm like no that's got to be dozer and everything i see says no it's kel they even gave out bookmarks at celebration six this way and it's like really Really, people? Think, you not McFly! Ray Think! <laughs> Ray Squadron proves that Kel was a poster boy. I mean, that cover does not at all look like what I'm envisioning a young poster boy to look like. I mean, that looks like a Biff Tannen is as good as it gets for me. Yeah, the cover is an odd one. I mean, we're looking at a book that essentially, like you said, it's sort of the Ocean's Eleven, the way that it was being promoted, and we do wind up with 11 people on the team, uh, if you count Eanger and such, and on the cover we get basically seven. You get Lando, 
actually kind of like the new look uh, in that particular costume that they gave Lando here. We get Han and Chewbacca, of course, because it's sort of their book, the first time we've seen a book that doesn't involve Luke and Leia along with them in a while, um, outside of just, you know, the weird cameo appearances and things like Death Troopers. Then on the back, we get Zerba, who kind of looks the way that I pictured him, not entirely, but close to it. We get one of the two twins, Tavia or Bink. I guess it's supposed to be Bink because she's got the uh, the gear that she's wearing and such. We get the Biff Tannen Kel, which I agree probably is meant to be Dozer, not Kel. Um, and we get Winter, who, I mean, every time we see Winter, it seems like the look of Winter changes, and she's supposed to look very much like Leia, so the two could be very easily confused with each other, as we saw in the Rogue Squadron comics and elsewhere. But if, if this is Winter, it's Winter after being married to Ike Turner for a little while. Um, because she does not look the way that I would expect. You take the hair off, I don't think she looks enough like Leia to really fit the way that she is usually described, but she's had so many different looks. You know, how would we even tell at this point, though I'm surprised she wasn't working under some kind of code name. But I've got to disagree with you <laughs> on the whole issue of uh, of the the quality of the book and and sort of what I was expecting. I was not expecting something good with this book. Um, I really loved Timothy Zahn's original Thrawn trilogy, and I really liked the Hand of Thrawn duology. But for the last 15 years, pretty much uh, since after Vision of the Future, and then of course we saw the uh, the t contract, the licensing, change hands so that Delray was the new licensing, uh, or the new licensee, excuse me, for these Star Wars books. I think Zahn has pretty much been coasting on his name and has been falling into the same traps that some other authors do in a huge, huge fashion. We got Survivor's Quest, a book that is absolutely unnecessary once Outbound Flight was published. We get Outbound Flight, which is, let me see here, uh, it is a whopping 450 pages or so long, uh, a very bloated work that seems to weave in characters that we never had any reason to believe were involved in those events in the first place. We get Allegiance, which is essentially Mara Jade as a superhero, the others at least not incompetent, just not quite as superheroic as she is. And then we get Choices of One, where she's the superhero Everybody else is pretty much incompetent, including Han, Leia, Luke, and all. I mean, Luke very nearly cuts Han in half. He gets his lightsaber pickpocketed. And in that entire book that runs over 300 pages, we don't even get a resolution to the fight with the main bad guy. That has to be done in a special novella with the 20th anniversary edition of Heir to the Empire. Um, I was really not a fan of a lot of Zahn's works since that jump. I think his quality level has dropped immensely. That being said, Scoundrels was the first Timothy Zahn novel I actually really enjoyed in a decade and a half. Um, I really like the book, though it does start a little bit slow. Lots of twists and turns, not a lot of trying to force his other pre-existing characters into the story. It's mostly a new cast. It is a fresh cast. I'm sure he's going to write more stories where he uses them over and over again to death like he does with <laughs> other characters. Um, but this had some level of interest for me and had a new cast of characters that grabbed my attention. I will say that I'm... It's funny because this was a story that didn't need to be told. There's nothing in there that needed to be told. The only thing that it really has an impact on in the broader continuity tends to be the whole issue of, you know, changing the meaning of what Lando means whenever he runs into Han and the Empire Strikes Back, which I'm sure we'll talk about separately. Um, but beyond that, it's a story that didn't need to be told. Very much like something like Buyer's Market. 
how did they get the one of the AT-ATs that was underneath Nomad City in the Thrawn trilogy in that story in Insider? That one, by telling that story with that being the only point and no real depth to it, I think was a throwaway story, never should have been written. This one, yeah. while still not having a huge impact, was a fun romp, and it really... I think this was a valuable read, if for nothing else than just getting back to the fun of the scoundrel side, so to speak, of Star Wars. So I actually have to give this one a pretty high recommendation, which I never thought I'd do for a Zon book again, the way things have been going the last 15 years. Yeah, it's definitely a flip the script moment, because for me, and for all the same reasons, I think, the more the more I stop to think about it, I'm like, why am I having such a hard time with this book? It, it, it drug on. It felt like every character had five extra plot twists. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I like a mystery. John Jackson Miller laces a mystery good for me. Like, he almost pushed the point where I'm like, okay, I need to know the answer to that thing five minutes ago or 30 pages ago because I'm going to forget it. In this book, it was like there was so much stuff going on. I was forgetting what in the heck was going on. And I was – the whole plot just got so confusing so fast. And I was just like, what in the heck is going on here? But then I stopped and I thought back to my first time reading any Zon book, which goes back to the, the the Thrawn trilogy. And I remember I had that same issue when I read that. I remember there were times that I had to just plug through chapters and even skip whole parts because I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I was realizing that the more I was focusing on trying to understand, the more I was not liking the book. And once I skipped and went through it and got through those books and then got into the next set of books, then I was like, okay, now I need to know more. And then I went back and reread the Zon stuff and was like, Okay, now I understand most of these concepts. Now I understand a lot of this stuff, and I got more out of it. Um, and a lot of a lot that's kind of like how Stover is for me. Stover stuff is really deep, and I'm like, whoa, what's going on? I really enjoy Stover stuff all the way through. Zon stuff is kind of hit or miss. I mean, a, a lot of the stuff like it's the second reads that I really enjoy. Survivor's Quest and Outbound Flight. You know, Nathan points out some great issues with those. For me, I loved them. I, I think. Everyone should read them in this order. You should read Survivor's Quest, get the mystery out of that, then go read Outbound Flight, and then go back and read Survivor's Quest again and and find all the nuances and the stuff that was hidden there the whole time. And I think that's my issue with the Ocean's Eleven aspect of this. I loved those movies. And on a film, I like a good mystery. But when it came to the books, like the way everything was drug out, it was so long that I literally just kept forgetting what was the point of all these things. And and the plots with the 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 cryodex and 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 the coins and, and how the, the money, if it did, doesn't get off these tabs right, it's not worth the millions of dollars or, or credits it's worth. It's only worth like 118 or 115,000. And, and the fact that they came to Han, it was just all so, I don't know, unbelievable. And yet at the same time, it, it I don't know, there was like a stretching of the credibility here for me that I, I just had such a hard time with it. But then it made me think about the way Zahn writes, and I realized that, yeah, you know, Zahn had been kind of doing this with most of his books for a long time, but this one was definitely a lot bigger than I was expecting. So for me, it's kind of weird to say, well, this book could have been smaller. I don't know. It's difficult for me to have an issue with Zahn because... I have loved the books that Nathan has hated for so long that for me, it's like getting back to the roots for him as a writer was a turnoff for me. I mean, the the story is good. And I do think that if you go back and reread it after knowing the big reveal at the end, you'll enjoy it more. But for me, maybe my intellect level, it was just too much. I could not keep up. Well, let me agree with you first off on the whole issue of you should definitely read Survivor's Quest before Outbound Flight if you're going to read those, because otherwise Survivor's Quest doesn't need to exist. That's a whole other thing. Um, 
I think for me, it's actually kind of, it, it, this isn't the classic Zon way of writing, the way that we saw in the Thrawn trilogy, because it's a different type of story. I do like the fact that there are things that we don't quite know. Like from time to time, you'll have a situation where the characters don't quite know something, and he does the whole third-person limited type of writing, where because they don't know, the narration doesn't give it away. And it does a very good job of sort of making this all work. Like at one point, Han sends Dozer off on a secret mission, basically, and it's just completely dropped, or it seems like it is until at the end you realize what the mission was and how things actually wind up playing out and how that fits into the, the grand scheme of things. Um, I like the way that worked. I actually really thought, and, and I still think this, that the Thrawn trilogy back in the day was the perfect start to launching off the EU again in 1991 because it managed to do what the Star Wars films did. Uh, build up the characters, give us more background and such, but then have the different characters have their own parts to play in the story and in the conclusion, finally sort of drawing all their paths back together to the one place they need to be. It's, it's sort of the classic uh, three-act and uh, multifaceted storytelling that we got with the Star Wars films, at least especially the classic trilogy, which was what he had to go on at the time. But I think the later ones got very bloated. Um, I, I never really found a reason to care in any of the books between... Vision of the Future, which I liked, and this one. In this one, honestly, the only thing that I had a lot of trouble following is, not so much following as picturing, the design of the vault. The whole idea here, folks, is that uh, Han is in need of money. Uh, they have managed to fit this in with a reference, I love it, to the Marvel series. Crimson Jack, uh, early on in the Marvel series, winds up jacking Han and Chewbacca, taking the reward they got from the Rebel Alliance. And at the end of the issue called Star Duel, after they leave Drexel uh, and face off with, with sort of a new version, like a Serpent Master type of individuals, but not the newspaper strip kind, um, they wind up uh, killing Crimson Jack. Han winds up killing Crimson Jack in this crazy uh, duel in space kind of situation. And at this point, that whole scenario is over. It's shortly after that, apparently, and Han needs money. Because he needs to pay off Jabba the Hutt. And this apparently means that it must be before the whatever events do still exist from the whatever happened to Jabba the Hutt story from the Marvel series, where Jabba was presented as Mosep and such. But eventually, in the end of that story, Han is able to get Jabba to back off on the, the whole bounty on his head until Jabba realizes Crimson Jack's ship has been destroyed, which he had invested in some, which means that the bounty's back on and whatnot. So... We have this scenario where it's somewhere between those, so it fits in with the Marvel stuff fairly well. And in order to make a big score, they're looking for somebody they can work with. And here comes this guy, Eanger. E-A-N-J-E-R. And Eanger has all these prosthetics and stuff on him, because supposedly three weeks ago, there was this uh, uh, event where Villachor, uh, Avrak Villachor, who is this Black Sun Sector Chief guy, uh, was wanting... Eanger's father's business, uh, Polestar Trading, or Polestar Imports, I believe, and basically set off an explosive device, and it wound up killing Eanger's father, and Black Sun, or Village Wars people, which is basically a division of Black Sun, got away with a whole bunch of credit tabs. And these credit tabs need to be uh, decrypted in order to get access to the money, but a slicer could, in theory, do it, so they need to get it at them, at them fast, and Eanger hires Han and Chewbacca to help him get them back. Chewbacca contacts Rochelle Ree, who is an old contact of his on the planet Wukar, which is where all this takes place, and together they assemble this team that winds up with the Andrew being 11 people to pull this heist. The problem to me was, 
being able to try to picture the vault itself. They do all this description, kind of like you would expect in, you know, in a movie, it would be, oh, it's even worse than that. I mean, I was always picturing, you know, Ocean's Eleven or the original Mission Impossible film with Tom Cruise, where they describe, you know, what the vault looks like, how do you get inside, you know, you're kind of picturing it as they describe it. And this, it's weird. It's like, it's like a container with these little finger holes in it, which has a hallway inside that leads to stuff, but it's all inside this gigantic ball of some kind, and the gigantic ball is inside a, a big vault room, and it's on this hovering thing that moves around. It's just extremely difficult for me to imagine, all the way up to the point where, at the end, instead of stealing the money out of the vault, they steal the vault, or at least that big ball thing that has everything in it, and it comes crashing Indiana Jones-style out of the building, chasing down Han to a degree, um, which I thought was kind of ironic, um, until they can finally get access to it. But it, I could never picture that well enough to really get my mind around what the heck it was they were doing in each stage of the process. I mean, I got what they were describing them doing at the moment. But how does that fit into breaking into the bigger thing? Okay, what's the next layer of security? I don't remember because I have such a hard time yeah. picturing it. So it's a heist where the target, I think he went, he really elaborated on it a little too much to the point where it was very difficult to follow. But that was the only thing I had trouble following on this one. I, I expected to get lost with so many players involved, and I didn't. I mean, I think it. he goes back to the characters often enough that you get a good sense of, of where they are and what they're doing, with the possible exception of Winter and Dozer near the end. But it's laid out in such a way that, you know, they act when they need to act. Man, Dozer at the end. If anybody is going to be really hosed, it's going to be Dozer. <laughs> I feel bad for him. I mean, at the end of the book, uh, the big reveal decides that he's going to get back at Dozer for that little sleight of hand. I thought, oh, that can't be good. You know. <laughs> yeah, I will say, I think that, I mean, it's kind of one of those, there was sort of a foregone conclusion here, I think that Han couldn't have wound up with a whole lot of money. He couldn't have wound up with enough to pay off Jabba the Hutt. So either the bounty had to be raised, which by the end of the book, it is. Um, oddly, because of sort of a throwaway thing that happens in the middle of the story that you don't really think much about, uh, where Lando gives away some information about someone that is working undercover for uh, Jabba in order to get himself some credibility, only to wind up having that uh, cause enough of a blow to Jabba that he raises the bounty on Han because it was Han's operation. Um, I mean, aside from that, I mean, they had to either raise the bounty so that Han still couldn't pay it, or they had to end up somehow with Han not having the cash at the end. And it winds up being a situation where they have a little bit of money, but not all that much by the time all is said and done. The credit tabs uh, aren't able to be accessed and stuff because we'll find that E. Andrew wasn't who he said he was, etc., etc. But I found that. Because that was what I was expecting, that did not wind up being sort of a downer at the end of the book. I think the way that it ended up sending people off in their own separate directions, the way it wound up working out with Lando and such, I think that actually worked pretty well. Um, you know, I'd like to see maybe some of these characters again, see what happens to them after these events, because obviously they can't retire because they're not fabulously wealthy at this point. But I did like the way that that, that wound up playing out there. I just kind of, it's funny because I compare it back to the, the novel Millennium Falcon. And I hated the ending of Millennium Falcon because by the time the book is over, you realize what they've been yeah. chasing the entire time, nobody gets. They've been chasing a red herring the entire time. And it was just, it was the MacGuffin to get them to go through and actually start the story and continue throughout the story. But there is no satisfactory ending to me in Millennium Falcon. And I think for some, they might feel that way reading this book unless they recognize the fact that, of course, Han isn't going to have the money to pay off Jabba. Otherwise, 
Empire Strikes Back doesn't play out the way that it does, neither does Return of the Jedi, etc., etc. So I would say kind of go into this at least knowing that, okay, at this point, Han has had the fortune or whatever it was he got as a reward taken away, and by the end of it, he can't have enough to pay back Jabba because it just would mess up the trilogy. They made sure to, to book in this thing so it doesn't rock the boat too much throughout. Well, one thing that kind of kind of bothered me a little was that it seems like, in a sense, they're kind of retconning Han as having the worst luck ever and really bad choices. I mean, it, you know, it seems like every time we go back to this era, everybody finds a way to slide in Han shot second and things like that. And it's like... Why can't we just leave that alone? Like, why do we have to define that? I mean, and now here's another book defining that Han gets really close to paying off Jabba. And then once again, he picks the wrong type of people and loses all his money. It's like, well, that's what you get when you just let any anybody walk right up to you and you buy whatever they're selling. I mean, it, it just seems like they're making him more and more naive with his trust. I mean, he's trusting people that he should never be trusting in the first place. And I think I had, I had real issue with that setup at the beginning, especially that I never quite really bought that. The Han, I mean, granted, yeah, it worked great for episode four and new hope, you know, when, when Obi-Wan walks up, but you know, I can rationalize that away by, well, that was more chewy and not really Han, but I don't know. I, I just had an issue with that. And it just kind of seems like they, they continue to push, what we later see in other books happening now, you know, and that, that's like my concern with the, the Star Wars comic. It's like, you know, if you go back here and you keep, you know, rehashing these things that we're going to see in these later books, why is anyone going to want to check out those later books? Because they're going to feel like, oh, I've already seen that character development because we've already seen Han do his little bumbling act. We saw Luke do whiny. We saw Leia as a warrior now. It's all old news. I don't want to see it again and again and again. And then you got those older fans that are like, well, hey, that's what Lucas does. We just rehash old things over and over again. That's Star Wars. Get used to it. I don't know. Maybe I'm at that point in the circle again. See, honestly, I think that's what people were looking for. I mean, it's the same argument that they're giving right now with Brian Wood's new Star Wars ongoing series, right? Which is the the, the EU has evolved. I know you've talked before about kind of liking to see the characters where they are in their development as of how far they've gotten now as opposed to going back to sort of earlier incarnations of them and such. But I think that's sort of their whole push right now is that it's like they feel like they've lost a chunk of the audience that was focused more along the classic trilogy. And because of that, they need to go back and tell stories like this one, like the Star Wars ongoing series within the shadow of Yavin and whatnot, because that's what some people use as their touchstone, what, what they're familiar with. It might allow in new readers, but at the same time, it might allow people to sort of recapture that feel from the film. So, I mean, to that degree... I would say that they managed to pull that off without making Han look like he was in a complete idiot. I, I'm not sure I saw it as him being too trusting so much as he's really, I mean, they're desperate by that point. I mean, it seems like they're very desperate. They, at the very beginning of the book, they almost get nailed by somebody who's working for Jabba. So, you know, that even pushes up the desperation. He's only really willing to work for Eanger or whoever he really is. We'll see later. Um just out of the fact that he needs the money and he thinks that maybe, maybe they can actually pull this all off. Um, you know, it, it seems like he's in a position where he can't really turn down anything at this point. Now, I agree 100% absolutely on that. Uh, I'm trying to figure out where, okay, Star Wars number one about timeline with this. I mean, are we like within the same year? Uh, is, is Scoundrels a little before? See, there's some question as to when this actually takes place. Uh, Jim Lahane, guy, is always very active on 
the Star Wars timeline and whatnot's uh, Facebook page and whatnot. He has suggested that the there's a reference late in the book of Winter recognizing the escape pod that was used in a rescue attempt during the story as being yeah. one that she helped procure for the Rebel Alliance, I believe it was seven months ago. You see, I work for I work procurement for them, and that escape pod you fired in the factory was part of a lot I smuggled to them seven months ago. Exactly. Which begs the question of whether or not, you know, was that something that they smuggled and got around the time of the Battle of Yavin or not? I would think that this just means it was something that maybe they got before the Battle of Yavin, and when Han needed one, they just gave him one. You know, not necessarily meaning that that's a seven-month jump after A New Hope, because I think seven months with Winter not knowing whether Leia is alive or not is pushing it a little bit. Yeah, um, that's... <laughs> it's, I, would, I would say it has to be sometime fairly early, because those Marvel issues with Crimson Jack and whatnot, um, they're fairly early in the Marvel run. I mean, the Crimson Jack storyline pretty much is just after the A New Hope adaptation, and whatever happened to Jabba the Hutt is pretty early on. It's like 28 or something like that in the series. Uh, so we're not looking at a huge jump in time in the Marvel stuff. We do know now that in the Shadow of Yavin, the first story for the Star Wars Ongoing series is approximately two months afterwards. It appears to be, at least right now, I'm thinking, right after Vader's quest. Unless there's another reason for Vader knowing the name Skywalker and having it bother him at the time. Maybe the Force whispering it to him or whatever. Um, but they've already said two months after in the, the text of that comic. So my guess is this is sometime within that that two months. Plus, I would so, argue I would argue against that seven-month date because they should have evacuated Yavin by that point. So how would Han yeah. know to find them anyway? Because the evacuation of Yavin, as I recall, was about six months um, post-Battle of Yavin. Well, you know, I mean, a lot of people say Zahn is a master of getting into these classic characters. And I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around, like, these two lines right here. This is from Scoundrels. Um... And Han goes, it'd be nice to have Jabba off my back for a change, Han said. Credits are the only thing that'll do that. And then we go into Star Wars number one, and he goes, what about Jabba? We're part of the rebellion now. Jabba's a backwater gangster with more death marks than even we have. Let's see him try something. These two statements from him about, about that death mark are just so opposite of each other that the only thing i can kind of i'm trying to wrap my head around is at the end when when he kind of tells winter who leia is or that leia is still alive and in that whole part where she was talking about you know you smuggling him in and all that uh she kind of says something along the lines of of uh they'll bring you in um i'm trying to think where it is because she she talks about how you know java raised the marker rochelle talks about that and winter says oh your your other friends oh what friends the people you work with, the people I assume you're going to give those blackmail files to, the people who just might be able to track down another cryodex. So, you know, maybe maybe by deciding at the end of this book to join the Rebellion at Winter's behest, maybe that's what gives him that untouchable feeling. But I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around those two different statements at what's supposed to be very close to the same time for that character. I mean, they seem so cross. Well, I would say that the statement made in the new Star Wars series is pretty much clashing with everything that we've seen of Han and the worry about, you know, paying back Jabba the Hutt. I don't see how that really fits in at all with the way we've seen Han and the whole issue of that characterized before. Um, I think, though, it's kind of ironic, or maybe intentional here, since he did reference the Marvel series with Crimson Jack early on in the book, that this is the same reason why he winds up being with the Rebel Alliance going into the Battle of Hoth, 
based on what the Marvel series talks about. You wind up getting to a point at the end of, I believe it was in Mortal Kombat, one of the later stories as we lead towards the events of uh, The Empire Strikes Back in the Marvel series. I want to say it's probably two issues before that. You run into this incident where they run into a bounty hunter, yet another bounty hunter that's presumed to possibly be the bounty hunter on Ord Mantell they ran into. Um, and you get this point where he learns that, you know, the bounty's back on his head and such, so, uh-oh, the only safe place right now if he doesn't pay Jabba back is with the Rebel Alliance. So there's that sort of sense that, you know, we're kind of coming full circle for the same reason for him to stick around. But yeah, I think, I don't think the in inconsistency there is with this book. I think it's with the new comics. From a, a character standpoint, you just talked about how the characters seem like they're kind of in their old selves and whatnot. You know, we've seen Luke whining and such before. Um, I will say, I really like what this book did for Lando. Because we get things like, um, there's a line where uh, Eandra asks, why do you hate Han? And Lando replies, I don't hate him. Not exactly. There was a deal. A couple of deals. And he's referencing back to the events uh, with Alicia back in the Han Solo trilogy by Anne Crispin and Underworld the Yavin Basilica. He's referring to both, and they do get both mentioned also by name uh, within the book here. He says, you know, there's a couple of deals where he ended up stiffing me out of what he'd promised. Eandra replies, doesn't sound right. No wonder you hate him. Which he replies, I don't hate him. I already said that. Besides, the more I've thought about it, the more I think it probably wasn't all his fault. That he was stiffed along with the rest of us. But that doesn't change the fact that he was the one who pulled us in and made all the big promises. I don't hate him, but I don't want to work with him anymore. If he hadn't specifically asked for me on the job, turns out it wasn't, uh, I wouldn't have come. Now, there's a couple exchanges like that and between him and Han that sort of make it so that that, you know, if I ever see you again, I'll kill you type of attitude he gave <laughs> Han in the Han, uh, Han Solo trilogy. Uh, it, it sort of evens out because that seemed like that was way harsh compared to the relatively humorous interaction we get in The Empire Strikes Back. Because in The Empire Strikes Back, you know, you know, after what you pulled and Han's like, what, who, me? And he gives that kind of look, not like he's knowing that he really screwed Lando over the last time they met. And, yeah, that was a good twist. Yeah, and he's able to... He's able to buy into the whole, you know, how you doing, you old pirate, and the hug and everything without being overly suspicious. So I, for a long time, it really didn't sit quite right with me that that was what it was that was meant to be the thing that he was referring to. Plus, we got Underworld, the Yavin Basilica, where here they are back together again. And okay, well, is that the one they're talking about? Is it the one on Alicia? You know, is he forgetting about the Yavin? What's the deal? And now what we wind up finding is, by the end of this book, that once they've completed the caper, They've got their hands on the credit tabs, which they can't do anything with, plus some other credits that they actually can split up. But Lando had asked for these Black Sun blackmail files that become one of the objects they're trying to get their hands on that's worth a lot of money. Um, he wants them as his payment instead of actual credits. He takes them. He leaves. Turns out Han uh, has switched them out, or I guess Zerba. Somebody has switched them out so that he doesn't actually have the real ones, and he winds up when he gets caught by uh, Imperial agents that have been dogging them through much of this that Han notices on the roof um, right before they make the exchange and whatnot, it saves Lando in the sense that it's not really the, the actual blackmail files. Lando has just let go, but, you know, you're going to owe De uh, Agent Deja a favor sometime in the future, etc., etc. Um, and it winds up being that even once that's done, and that would give Lando a reason to be angry, though not having the real ones keeps him from being really nailed, so he's sort of in better shape. Um, than he could have been. 
Han does make it a point to make sure that someone within the group gets the credits that Orlando's share because he couldn't get the real blackmail files, that they do get it to him. And that, I think, plays a lot more into the whole, you know, you've got a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled, and Han giving the, what, who, me kind of thing going on. Well, I think And the other side of that, too, was that Han bought the blackmail files with his share to round everyone up to the hundred thousand too. So it's like, then he also steals what Lando was planning on taking and selling to the huts to save his own bacon. So I, I thought that was a great twist. Yeah. I mean, it manages to make it something where, you know, Lando didn't get what he was promised, but he didn't get completely screwed out of it. His life wasn't put in danger in the end, at least not as much danger as it could have been. I could see how Lando could walk away from this saying, you know, well, I got some money, but I still, yeah, I, I don't want to work with him again, especially after what they did here to sort of soften the edge of where he, the more he thought about it, the more it was, you know, there were other circumstances involved in those situations other than Han just screwing him over. I think that is probably the biggest positive contribution of this story. I think it's a fun story in and of itself, but from a continuity standpoint, it's mainly throwaway, but that, it's going to make me look at that interchange in The Empire Strikes Back a little bit better because I'm not yeah. going to be thinking back to the Han Solo trilogy. I'll be thinking back to this when that happens, and I think it'll it'll feel more consistent. Oh, that's true. And the other cool thing about that scene with Lando and Eanger is that you unknowingly at that time, but you find out at the end of the book, Eanger is the one that sent the message out to Rochelle to contact Lando. So it's very ironic that they're having that conversation, and Lando is like, well, if he hadn't asked for me personally. It's like, ha, <laughs> ha. But, you know, you, you're right in the aspect of the character. There were some cool character stuff. Uh, I really liked Winter. I thought her character was was an interesting addition. There were some moments that I was like, okay, do they really need to have her pull a, a Leia and Chewie moment uh, on Kashyyyk where they're bouncing from tree to tree with her hanging off of his belly because she has to go in now and follow in Bink inside to look inside the safe. I mean, that it was like, really, you couldn't have hooked up a camera to Bink or something so you could see everything she's seeing. I There, there were a lot of moments like that where, where it felt like there was just too many dominoes set up. But I, I really do believe that that will make for rereading this book a much better experience. I, I really think there was a lot going on. And I think for me that that was... I, I, I wanted the answers and I wanted them to come fast. And because they weren't coming, that really made it difficult for me. I, I like books that throw the information out at you. Uh, something more like Darth Plagueis, where you get that Wikipedia, uh, you know, Lucinopedia of information just dumped in your lap. I, I don't know. I, I, the mysteries are great, but I think I like it more on TV versus this. But Kel, Kel was a character that I really enjoyed him being in there. And I was really bummed that they didn't do more with him. I mean, yeah, he had his moments, but. I just, I, I really felt like, you know, he was just kind of stuffed in there just because he had a, a skill set and hey, look, we can tie other stories into this. But I don't know. I mean, I, I just felt like they could have done more with some of the characters. Yeah, I don't think that, I mean, if this were to be compared to Death Troopers, then Winter and Kel are the Han and Chewie um, that are just kind of <laughs> shoehorned in there as if we somehow need them to be in the story. That always kind of struck me as weird that they would be a part of this. I mean, I understand the concept that they are working with Mazik, who, of course, we saw from the Thrawn trilogy. They're working with Mazik. They are basically helping Mazik break into warehouses and stuff like that, stealing the stuff that Mazik wants, but also leaving it open so the Rebel Alliance can come in and grab things afterwards. So they're helping the Alliance while they're undercover with Mazik. And if Mazik thinks they are the best people for the job, it makes sense for him to send them, and that shows their cover, etc., etc. Um, 
but it just didn't seem like they were necessary. You could have had any other characters in that position. All you would need is someone to have enough of a memory to be able to remember the cryodexes, be able to create a false one. So really anyone who might have had some, you know, diplomatic ties or something on Alderaan or something like that. You wouldn't necessarily need it to be Winter, and you certainly didn't need it to be Kel, because Kel barely does anything other than fashioning a few, you know, explosive devices throughout the course of the story. That could have been any number of other characters. I'm I'm honestly surprised he used Kel just because of the the, the questions it might raise as far as, you know, how it fits into the grander scheme of things with, with Kel's storyline. But I guess it was one of those things where Han and Chewie weren't thought of as, as close enough connections for many people that they need more EU characters in there that people recognize. So they just grabbed, you know, Winter and Kel because, well, we know they work, you know, for the Rebel Alliance at the time. And, hey, Winter's one of Zahn's previously existing characters and he can't resist. <laughs> My opportunity, and I'm taking it. I'm surprised George Cardas didn't show up at some point. You know, that actually wouldn't have surprised me that much at all. And I'd have been excited, because I actually like George Cardas. I, I I want more, you know. I want to know how he was able to make that cup just magically appear. And and how he became Force-sensitive. I mean, granted, it had something to do with Yoda healing him or something like that. But that that's the thing about those books, man. I still, to this day, there's stuff about that. I'm like, wait, I didn't quite get that. What? And the technology, the devices being used and, and how they worked, that kept confusing me. The the, the way the cryodex, Cairo decks worked, uh, the spit miter and, and what the heck it was doing. And I, there was just... Those moments were the moments that got me so lost that I, I was like, okay, I feel like I need to start this book completely over. And, you know, and then the first chapter, too, where they established uh, Deshu or Deshalu and Deja, I was like, really, do we even need this chapter? I mean, we could have skipped this all together. And then, you know, we get to the end and we find out that Yanger had set up things for Han to even be on Wakura in the first place. And I'm like, wait, wait where did that happen? But that, I guess, is, gets back to the Ocean's Eleven aspect. Of, like, you get to the end of the movie and they show you, okay, this happened while you weren't paying attention, and this happened and you didn't know. And I admit, again, I love it in TV form, but just, I, I'm not a fan in, in my books. Or maybe it's just the Star Wars books. Maybe it's one of those, like, like Aaron Gowen said on the Star Wars Report review, you know, can I have my lightsabers back now? I mean, that, that to me, I mean, Grant, we did have a lightsaber and it was tiny and it was almost power dead, which I thought was an interesting twist. There were a lot of interesting twists, but I don't know. Maybe I just got to go back and reread this book and maybe then I'll enjoy it more because I, I admit that's been the key for all of Zahn's books for me. And I never really realized that until just reading Scoundrels. I, I just naturally assumed I read every Zahn book and loved him. And I'm like, the more I thought about it, I'm like, well, no, even the last few, I was like, well, it was okay. And then I read it again. I was like, okay, this book's pretty good, you know? And it wasn't until those second reads that I was like, yeah, I'm really enjoying these. And when I look, Back on, you know, because I really, I struggled through this book big time. But when I look at, at the plot and everything going on, there is a lot there. So maybe on a second or third read, maybe I will enjoy it as much as Nathan. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm trying to be skeptical or optimistic, I guess. Well, see, I've sort of read it twice. I read it the first time and I got it, gosh, I forget when I got it because we got review copies of this thing. We had a review copy of the... Uh, uncorrected page proofs, the ones with those, like, kind of purple covers and whatnot, and then eventually they sent out the actual finished copy of this thing. So I had read through the review copy, and I went back and used the regular copy, you know, a couple months after the fact to actually write the summary for the Star Wars Timeline Gold and whatnot, and I found that 
I think it, it did feel like I understood more as I went through it. I don't think I was really lost the first time around, but I could see certain things coming, like, ah, I remember this part kind of stuff. I like the way he sets up some things where you're wondering what the heck is going on. Like, for instance, Villachor, as they're trying to find a way to get into his vault and manipulate things uh, and get around Kazadi, which is a black son Vigo, who is also Faleen, right, which fits perfectly in with what we saw this week on The Clone Wars, um, with him showing, or I guess last week, depends on when you're listening to this episode, um, the way that they set things up there, they had this, uh, oh, what is his, what is his name? Uh, the security chief, whose name I'm forgetting. Oh, uh, Shikoa? Shikoya? Yeah, Shikoa or something like that. Um, there's a moment- Yeah, and I have a hard time with all these dang names, and I, I blame Zon for introducing things like Mithnarurarodo and crap like that. I mean, like, can't you give me names like Dozer? Kel, some simple ones. Oh, wait, no, those aren't, wait, no, those are might be yours, but man, I don't know, the school and stuff. I'm like, I cannot get these right. I've been calling him Villacor. <laughs> I'm like, man, I know when I talk about this, I'm going to have every name wrong because I can't figure out how to pronounce this crap. Yeah, there are a lot of odd, odd choices of, of syllables going through, but no, the, the guy, Sequoia, or however you want to say it, Sequoia, um, there's a point at which Bink is hitting on him. And later in the book, you realize that part of what's going on is that it's meant to, because he doesn't know she has a twin, it's meant to give her a way to get close to him to get this security pendant, but the way they're going to have to pull it off, because it's got this stuff on it that can be tracked, is that she'll grab it, and then they use this tearaway clothing thing uh, that Zerba has developed, which essentially takes the upper layer of clothing and rips it off into this little egg-shaped thing while leaving you with whatever you were wearing underneath. And they use that to swap twins. And they must be perfectly identical twins because he doesn't notice a difference. He's fooled by this. Um, that was one of those stretching credulity just a little bit kind of issues here. Um, but they managed to switch it around so that there is no proof because the person who actually touched it is now long gone and it's the other twin there in her place. But they initially have her bump into him and it's, you know, oh, he's immediately on to her. And she's like, good. You know, she likes the fact, and you're sitting back going, why is it a good thing yeah. that he's focused on her as a possible conspirator? How is she going to be able to pull anything off, et cetera, et cetera? Um, there are misdirects like that. Little things where they yeah, kind of leave Dozer you thinking, wait, what? Too. Dozer's scene like that where he notices that he's being watched by, the, what, two or three different security people. And so he tests it by walking towards one of the doors to see how they'd react and stuff. Those were really cool scenes, and I could definitely feel the the Ocean's Eleven-ness going on when when those happen. <laughs> it kind of made me feel, while reading, though, that it was very much like what I'm seeing now. Right now, I'm in the process of summarizing the Imperial Agent storyline for uh, The Old Republic. And one of the things going on in that is that they're starting to realize there's this organization called the Star Cabal that has been manipulating events between, Jet, uh, between the Republic, and specifically the Jedi Order, and the Sith Empire since the Great Hyperspace War, so as to essentially keep wars from breaking out or wind up wiping out the Jedi and the Sith so that normal people can just go on and live in peace without having to worry about Jedi and Sith instigating war and whatnot. And like, as you're going through the early parts of the story, there's all these things where you're like, well, who's doing this? Which group is doing this? What's happening here? And you see something happen and you're wondering, you know, what allegiance do these people have? What's the overall effect of this? And I kind of felt that with this book because we had, you know, we had, Eander's group, or Han's group, whatever you want to call it, plus we had Villachor's people, plus we had Imperial agents who were there, um, working presumably for Armand Isard, they refer to the director, I don't know that they say Isard by name, um, you've got Black Sun, 
and you've got the Kazadi and his faction of Black Sun, plus another one named Aziel, who's supposed to be there with him, but there's times at which, you know, they make it seem like maybe they could be working against each other, or maybe they could be separated out. Um, plus, you get the local police, some of whom are on the take, but on the take to whom, etc., etc. We've got all these different factions. Heck, even the uh, Imperial captain we meet, uh, Warven, I believe is his name, at the very beginning of the book, probably so they could do, like, the mental image of the pull-down to a Star Destroyer, um... He doesn't even know that the Imperial intelligence agents are intelligence agents. All he thinks is that it's this spoiled brat uh, kind of guy from the Imperial noble houses and his assistant, when they're actually both there as part of this whole, you know, trying to get the blackmail files and take down Kazadi and Black Sun and everything. Um, there's all these different angles on it, all these different groups. You don't really quite know all the final allegiances by the end. And then we find out, of course, the big reveal, this is the biggest spoiler here for us, that... On the red last... alert! Red alert! <laughs> yeah, on the last few pages, we realize Eander, the real Eander died six weeks ago. Three weeks before the accident that supposedly caused him to get injured and need all the prosthetics when his father died. Turns out that the prosthetic, that's supposed to be like a prosthetic hand type thing, is actually hiding a blaster that he uses to take out Kazadi, the target, and as uh, Binkatavia escape when he comes in to supposedly rescue them, uh, he's taking pictures of the dead body. Turns out, Ian, uh, underneath all the stuff, Eanger is actually Boba Fett, which reminded me of Side Trip, where we had a, was it, is it a Boba Fett or Jodo cast that when you opens his helmet, he reveals yeah, it's Jodo Thrawn. Uh, it, oh, it's Thrawn underneath. It's not actually Jodo cast. Um, kind of one of those, those twists. The only thing that got me about that, though, knowing that on the second read through, there are times when we have story segments that are told from the point of view of Eanger. And that's a very difficult thing to do when you're writing in a story in which you need him to sound like he is true to his character and yet not reveal that it's Boba Fett. And I don't think that always was pulled off as well as it should have. I think someone going back and reading it, reading the the ones that are third-person limited from Eander's perspective, are going to say, wait a second, why is he thinking this? Unless it's more of a matter of we sort of think of this as an as a narrator up above everything who's describing what's going on if you were to like look at the expressions on Eander's face that would suggest the attitude as opposed to being what he's actually thinking underneath. That's the one point where I think that whole um, twist of it being Boba Fett somewhat gets dicey when you go back and reread the thing overall. I mean, I think it worked out well. I mean, some of it, a lot of his dialogue, you know, trying to push the whole issue with Lando, trying to push. Um, you know, you know, we, we need to go in and attack now. You know, we can't just do this from the outside. We gotta get inside, because he needs a way inside to go after Kazadi and such. Um, I mean, those things make perfect sense looking back at it. It's, it's not his actions and his words. It's the narration that goes with it that kinda leaves me scratching my head sometimes. I mean, I think it works, but I don't think it was handled as expertly as it really necessarily needs to be in order to pull off something like that so that people who reread will still feel like it's just as consistent as the first time around. Well, I know when, when Eanger's hand blew off and Kuzadi got shot, I, I was like, whoa, wait, what's going on here? You know? And the reveal, I, I thought the reveal actually worked. I think the reveal is definitely going to make Scoundrels a better book for me alone going through it a second time. But it makes me wonder, though, after X-Wing Mercy Kill, I'm shocked that they did not advertise this as a FET novel. That I don't agree with. Because as much as... <laughs> I'm as, joking, of course. I don't I just... I, I, I would say that this is one where I was actually kind of surprised at the fact that that stayed a spoiler that wasn't really out there. I, you know, granted, we got these way before most folks did, so we'd already read it and seen it, didn't spoil it 
or anything like that for anybody. But it kind of leaves me sitting back thinking, you know, given how many people get it day one and immediately go to the message boards and start discussing it and whatnot, I'm surprised that I didn't find all over Facebook, because I usually don't go to Star Wars forums much anymore. I go to Port Haven every now and then. That's about it, honestly. Uh, that and the Fantasy Flight Games forums for their games. I'm surprised it wasn't all over the place spoiling that this is him at the end of the book. So in that sense, you know, it... The secret was kept very, very well. I hope it wasn't because people were in your position where they were just like, oh my god, I can't get through this book. I cannot do this. And they just never got to those last pages. But no, I, I think that was, that was a good man. Twist. I mean, everybody's like, the ending's the best part. And I'm like, do I just skip to the end? I mean, because I am just choking on these words here. Oh my gosh, I just wanted to get good. <laughs> and then it would start to get good. And I'm like, all right, I got past that part. And I'm like, Everybody's like, oh, well, once you get past the first 150 pages, I'm like, I'm only hit 130. Wait, this isn't the good part, is it? And then all of a sudden I turn the page. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah, you shouldn't have to wade through that many pages, though, before it gets going. It definitely was a slower starting book because they had to bring the group together, introduce the characterization of all these different characters, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I can see how see difficult how the job really yeah. was going to be. <laughs> yeah. I will point out one thing, though, for those who didn't get a chance to see anything with the re advanced review copies. Um, I thought this was kind of neat, and I'm curious if it's because they decided to do the novella, Win or Lose All, late in the process. Because there are scoundrels, and then of course there's that tie-in heist in Insider with uh, Tavia and Bink Kiddick, the ghost thief and her support sister. Um, but there's also that novella that focuses on Lando, uh, Tavia and Bink, and then Zerba, who are all from this storyline. And it takes place prior to scoundrels. But if you look on page 113 of the uh, uncorrected page proofs, there's this discussion going on. So Han and Lando are talking about Dozer and whether or not he's going to be good for the job and everything. They're like, he'll be okay, says Han. That thing with the fouling has him a little rattled, that's all. To which Lando replies, you know him pretty well? Well enough, Han says, uh, I thought you knew him too. And Lando replies, talking about Dozer but with a side reference to other characters, we've crossed paths a couple of times but that's about it. Zerba, I only know by reputation. Winter and Kel, I don't know at all. There's that line there, Zerba, I only know by reputation. If you then look in the finished version of the book, the retail version, he says, we've crossed paths a couple of times, but that's about it. Still the same. Zerba, I only worked with once on that Tachin thing. Winter and Kel, I don't know at all. Then in the back of the book, after the story itself is over, there's a little one-page advertisement type thing that says, did you wonder what Lando was referring to when he said, Zerba, I only worked with once on that Tachin thing? Find out in Star Wars, Win or Lose All, an original ebook novella by Timothy Zahn, available now for all e-reading devices. I thought it was kind of neat that they would make that, that cool. change, but the change seems to be there just to make it, it possible for the novella to exist. Because when I hit that point in going through and reading the uh, uh, the uncorrected proofs, that's actually what I was using at first to try to go through and summarize. I was like, whoa, I need to stop and go back and use the, the finished version of it, because which doesn't have all my little post-it notes attached to it, because maybe there's more things changed like that. That was just an accident that I ran into it. But I thought that was kind of cool that they switched that around a little bit to give us a way to fit that in. Um, it just shows, I think, that the, the process is always evolving whenever they're trying to create new stories. Of course, it also, I think does a really good job of showing us just how completely unnecessary Win or Lose All is in the grand scheme of things, albeit being another fun little crime caper. The caper. Yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta have some fun with your capers. And 
you know, there were moments where the humor was really fun that I, I enjoyed the little bantering bits back and forth between Han and Lando. I think they were, for me, they were the funnier aspects of everything. I mean, it was interesting to see when, when Dozer got freaked out and how he kind of did a, uh, a, a Sean Spencer and psych with the uh, way he got around the lie detector with how Dozer got around the pheromones with lying about things and not lying about things, little things like that. There were a lot of uh, really cool pay- paying attention to detail moments throughout this book, but I, I fell victim to that first half, man. That just, it, it meant me to death. I think if, if there's a way to describe this, it, I was worried in the first little bit that this was going to wind up being like the Zahn of 2004 to 2011, right? The Survivor's Quest, Outbound Flight, Allegiance, Choices of One, Zahn. Not the Zahn that we got with 91 through 98, and with most of his, what, 20 or however many short stories that he's written up to this point. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised, though, to find that this stuff that was being laid down really did fit with the rest of everything else. And yes, all the characters were competent, as were the villains. But he didn't take the characters that we knew and loved from somewhere else and dumb them down. Granted, one of them that he could have dumbed down was one of his own characters, and he certainly wasn't going to do that. Winter. But Han and Chewie didn't wind up looking like imbeciles. He didn't wind up adding in a bunch of unnecessary references to other works of his. Uh, the Mazic thing actually makes sense to be there, and you don't need to understand it to understand the grand scheme of things or anything like that. So, I mean, I think that... Once you get past the first little bit that is so much set up for such a long book, uh, it is, what, 340 pages or something like that? Let me see here. It is, oh, wow. Wow, I was very wrong. 393. It's almost 400 pages. Yeah, it's And then we get, the, we get the previews for Crucible and uh, Into the Void in the back of it. But, yeah, I mean, for a book that is that large, even if you figure that the, that the storytelling style that we see a lot in Star Wars is the first act is a lot of setup. I mean, 150 pages out of 400, that's, you know, a little over the first third. So I can see how that sort of works, but I'm not sure that we necessarily look at novels the same way we look at the films. But we got to remember that that's the way that Zahn wrote the Thrawn trilogy, for instance. He definitely had that three-act structure going on, and if he's going back to that and that classic storytelling, I never thought I would say it, but I'm actually kind of eager to see what Zahn could do if he came back into this era of Star Wars storytelling again in something that doesn't involve Mara Jade or Thrawn. Something See, I'm just ready for him to move out of this era. Let's put him in an era that he has not played in. Let's give him something totally new. I mean, I would love to see him do something, you know, at, after Crucible or something in the KOTOR or Dawn of the Jedi era, you know. Give the guy something else and, and let's see what else he can do. Because, I don't know, for me, I think, I think Scoundrels kind of shook my faith. See, and it's the one that gave me faith back in the man. We are completely opposites <laughs> on this one. It's bizarro day here at Star Wars Beyond the Films. <laughs> now, before we head out, just something to keep in mind. Keep an eye on the show's Facebook page, facebook.com slash Films. if you're trying to get there directly. Um, we will have a contest going once this episode has been officially uh, released out to audiences in which you'll be able to enter for a chance to win an original early printing, not first printing, I don't think, but an early printing uh, hardback, original blue cover hardback of Heir to the Empire from back. Uh, it's a copy that was 
I believe it was picked up back in about 1992 or so, uh, just within the first year of that release leading up to uh, Dark Force Rising. Not these 20th anniversary special edition one that you can find everywhere, but the actual original blue hardback uh, from Bantam Spectra is one that I'm going to be giving away out of my collection. I wound up finding that I have a, a spare, so we're going to give that thing away here on the show. So keep an eye out on the Facebook page. We'll get you the details. Keep your eye on the Facebook page. Keep your eye on a Facebook page. It's funny because uh, I was calling down to the bookstore to see if they had a copy of Ascension down there to get it so I can have the paperback so my dad can finally read it because I only had it on Kindle. And the bookstore guy, you know, he's a really nice guy. And he gets to be talking about different things Star Wars. So I'm like, hey, do you happen to have an audiobook of Scoundrels? Because I'm thinking, you know, it's taking me forever to read this thing. I, I might need to get the audiobook. $45 for the audiobook. I was like, holy cow. So he starts going off about the guy that does the audiobooks and, and of recent is just not very good. And that's why that they sell so high. But then he starts going on about Zahn. And apparently he uh, went on a rafting trip with Zahn because Zahn lives here in Oregon. And he's talking about how it was at the time of Independence Day. That movie came out, and I guess the entire rafting trip, Zahn is just going off about how much he hates that movie, how much the movie sucks. And by the end of the boat trip, the guy's just like, man, all I can remember is just him complaining and bitching and moaning. <laughs> just dying. I'm like, really? That is interesting. I've got to share that with Nathan. <laughs> Speaking of uh, personal encounters with Zahn, I'm not going to be at Con Carolinas this year. I actually think that I'm done. But if you are going to Con Carolinas in Charlotte, uh, it's concarolinas.org if you want the information about the convention. But Timothy Zahn is the writer guest of honor this time around. I also wanted to ask, since you mentioned it there, how much did you say that the unabridged audiobook was when you went to look at it at that bookstore? Yeah, he said it was about $45. Wow, okay, because I'm one thing that I would suggest to anybody... Um, who has a mobile device or doesn't mind burning something onto a ton of CDs is to check out some of these through something like iTunes. I think they're hooked up with Audible is what the deal is um, because the unabridged copy of Scoundrels on the iTunes store is twenty six ninety five. I mean, that's not too bad. Granted, the, the e-book on the iBook store is 14 bucks for the book. Um, so it's still more than you'd pay as far as, you know, comparing discounts. But if you compare the cover price of one to the discount on the audiobook, it's actually not ungodly horrible. It's just that those unabridged ones take forever to listen to. I remember trying to get through listening all of the Revenge of the Sith unabridged book prior to uh, Revenge of the Sith actually coming out in theaters and trying to uh, to get it all. I remember that being quite the chore. Thank goodness for long car trips. See, I, I got hosed when I was working at Kodak and got shifted over into small format. And in small format, you were literally a part of the machine. You had to take each stack and, and hand put it into the bags. And so it went from having all this free time with my hands free to I had plenty of free time, but my hands were busy. And so I had to switch to the audiobooks. And at that point, I, uh, it was really cool because I had 12 hours to listen to the audiobooks. And man, I just, I remember re listening to all the New Jedi Order stuff with all the sounds and the music and the blasters and the. Stuff. I'm like, this is awesome! It's almost like a movie! Oh, that's cool. Hey, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you, everyone, once again, for hanging around with us as we uh, discuss and explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe and everything else that we love. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com, as well as iTunes, Zoom, and airing on Middle Earth Network Radio. Our episodes are also available right on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. 
But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, your comments just might be heard on our show. Each month, we will release one of our feedback episodes when we have enough emails and messages from you. So if you have something to say about the show, fire it off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Zahn will manage to do this well in his next book.